Welcome to Raising OKC Kids, Conversations with Metro Family in Oklahoma City. I'm Erin Page, and joining me today is Adam Soltani, local dad and executive director of the Council on American Islamic Relations of Oklahoma, or CARE, to talk about giving back. Welcome, Adam. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's truly an honor to be with you today. Thank you. We're glad, glad to have you. I'm glad to get some dad perspective always. <laughs> So CARE was founded in 2006, and Adam, you were actually one of the founding members, serving as a board member and then a volunteer until you became the executive director in 2012. So tell us more about the mission of CARE and what it's been like for you to have been involved from the very beginning and watch the impact of the organization and our community continue to grow. Sure, absolutely. So in 2006, I was recruited as a college student to join the board of, you know, this new organization that was being formed, Council on American Islamic Relations. We were going to be the Oklahoma chapter. At that time, there were probably about a dozen or 15 chapters in the United States. And the question on my mind and everyone's mind was why, you know, why do we need this thing? And we quickly realized the necessity of it when they pointed at two major um, issues that had come up within the last few years at that point. One of a young girl, um, I think it was in McAllister, Oklahoma, at an elementary school that was told she couldn't wear her headscarf, uh, the religious headscarf, which is known as the hijab, to school. And there was a bit of an issue with that. And the National Care Office in Washington, D.C. was able to step in and help her secure her right to wear it to school. And then the other issue that was perhaps a little bit more high profile and definitely got a lot of people's attention was of a young girl who turned 16 years old in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and she went to get her permit and her driver's license, just like every you know 16-year-old wants to do. And she was told she couldn't take a picture uh, for her license wearing the hijab or the religious headscarf. And that caught everyone's attention because that was like, why, why would you even say that, right? Why, why would you go that far? Um, and so there was obviously some education that needed to be done there. But additionally, the idea of advocacy on behalf of not only this individual, but an entire community of people. So when I heard these things, I said, okay, this sounds like a worthwhile cause. I said, why me, right? I mean, I was in college. They said, well, we need a youth representative. And also we need somebody who's connected to the Persian community in Oklahoma. I just so happened to be half Iranian from my father's side. Okay, fine, I'll join and see what's going on. And those first you know, two years I was a member of the board, it was just like a whirlwind because we basically had to get all these people you know, involved as far as volunteers. We held our first fundraiser with no staff members. So that was interesting. Thankfully, a lot of people showed up. We raised $100,000. About six months later, we hired our first director, a good friend of mine, Ruzi Hashmi. And uh, we were off to the races, if you will. And our, our big, first big issue that came up was just about a year after our founding in 2007 when 17-year-old Samantha Eloff in Tulsa was basically denied a job. Uh, she initially, they wanted to hire her at Abercrombie and Kids, but was told by the district manager, we won't hire you because you violate our look policy. Um, a lot of people don't realize that some of these stores, I don't even know if they're around anymore, but they actually have a look policy. They want their employees 
to look the part. Now, what was it that violated the look policy? It wasn't the way she dressed or anything about her other than she wore, again, the headscarf, the hijab. That's been a common theme in the work we do that women, Muslim women, are typically the most discriminated against as far as Muslims in America because of the visible markers of the headscarf that many of them choose to wear. And so that was a sign that we had done the right thing, that we established this organization and we were able to advocate on her behalf, connect her to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the government agency, and eventually that case went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States where she won um, the right to wear the hijab at work and not be discriminated against in the hiring process. And that's the key thing, but it wasn't just for her. And that's what makes this work so meaningful to me. It was actually the protection of the First Amendment right for all people to be able to observe their religion and not be discriminated against in the hiring process. So when 2012 rolled around, so here's a little uh, hint, you know, at, at, at my success, right? Everyone looks at me and say, wow, you've done this for almost 10 years. You know, I'm also now an adjunct instructor at Oklahoma State University. You must have done something right to be so successful. I say, yeah, I got lucky and I had good friends. That's, that's really all it was. When this opening came about in 2012, executive director of CARE Oklahoma, I wasn't going to apply for it. I actually saw the listing and I said, nah, delete, right, from my inbox. And I was called by several friends and I was talked to by several family members that convinced me that I was the right person for the position. So the key to my success at that time was I didn't believe in myself, truly. You know, I, I was a, really a fresh college graduate. I had been out of uh, college, graduated from the University of Central Oklahoma, three years removed from that. I've been working at the Department of Human Services. So I was in people-driven work you know, and enjoyed working at the Department of Human Services, but I did not yet believe in my ability to actually run a nonprofit organization. But the key was there were people around me that saw that in me and thankfully encouraged me and pushed me to do it. And so in 2012, I applied, I was hired, and I started July of that year. And it's just been a roller coaster ride ever since. But uh, long story short, you know, we've had a lot of very successful um, advocacy issues related to civil rights. We've protected the civil rights of not only Muslims in Oklahoma, but of people of all cultures and religions. But more than that, we've grown the organization to have departments focused on civil rights, government affairs, community outreach, and now added our newest department um, this past year uh, for prison ministry. Um, there, in Oklahoma, a lot of people know that we have such a high rate of incarceration, and we have over 500 Muslims right now in the prison system that need access to good education and need help when they get out, re-entering into society. So that's a new initiative that we're still building up. Uh, but it's been a roller coaster ride, like I said. Um, and it's been, you know, not only for me, but also for my family. My oldest son was born about four or five months after I started in 2012. And my wife always reminds me that I was not there for the first two years of his life, you know? Um, I was absent because I was building this nonprofit until in 2014, we were able to start growing and start adding more team members. So for all the parents listening and all the families listening, you know, there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into doing this kind of work. Now, 
I can look back and say, yes, we've done a great, a great job. We are successful and we're going to continue building on that success. But there was a lot of sacrifice involved and I don't give the credit to myself. I give the credit to my wife, um, to my children who are now old enough to know that daddy's working, you know, that are patient with me, to my family, my extended family, my parents, my wife's parents and siblings that have been there every step of the way. That's really beautiful, Adam. And you're absolutely right that especially for working parents, um, there is a, most of the time a community and a village around them that is helping to drive their success. So I, I love that you're giving credit to your wife and the people around you and your kids too, because it, as they get older, um, it does take some buy-in and some understanding from your children to, to mm. do the kind of work that you get to do every day. So one of the recent projects that CARE has been highly involved in is welcoming Afghan refugees to Oklahoma, providing them with care packages, helping them get settled. You guys have been taking in donations, occasionally have had to say, stop, we can't take any more <laughs> donations right now, which has been so wonderful to see. What has this whole process been like for you, Adam, especially as a dad, to see mm. the community come together to provide for families and individuals? Yeah. So first and foremost, I give a huge shout out to Catholic Charities, Catholic Charities, the organization that both in Oklahoma City and Tulsa are resettling the 1800 Afghan refugees. We have the third highest refugee resettlement population in the entire country. So major shout out to them for all the work they're doing and their entire team across the state. You know, they called us and they said, we're going to need help. This is a huge number of people. This is unprecedented. We've done this work, but we're not prepared to support this many people in a short period of time. And when I heard this, first of all, I said, no doubt, we're going to be involved. But then when I heard that the majority of these people are going to be coming in, are going to be children and they're going to be families, I said, well, even more reason to get involved. In fact, there was an article just the other day on NPR that said that 40% of the Afghan refugee population coming into the United States. So 40% of over 50,000 people are children, right? That's a lot of children. And we've seen that in the families that have come in thus far. You're not talking about small families. You're talking about eight, 10, 12, 13 people, only two of whom are parents or adults, right? A lot of them are children. So anytime I hear something like this, and anytime somebody says, we need help, the moment I see that there are families and children involved, I think about my own. And I think about what if we were in that situation and we needed that kind of assistance, we would hope that people would be kind and generous and, and sympathetic to the cause and just provide that, not necessarily a handout, something I learned from my days working at the Department of Human Services, but really a hand up to let them get started in this new life on the right foot. Um, and so we began, as you mentioned, with these welcome kits, these care kits that would give them essentials like hygiene items because they're traveling with just the clothes on their back, sometimes nothing more, maybe a small bag. So things we take for granted, deodorant, toothbrush, toothpaste, we give them PPE items, you know, some of them are vaccinated, some of them may be high risk. Um, and still, you know, they're going into, you know, temporary housing. So they need to be cautious with those issues. And then the more important thing to me was to reassure them that their faith and their culture are safe here. Again, we take that for granted. And as a Muslim, I'm, you know, my wife is Muslim. I'm raising kids that I hope will 
if they don't fully embrace, at least understand the culture and the religion and have uh, not just an understanding, but a respect for it. So I know the importance of reassuring them that you've left your homeland, but you're coming to a place that will support you 100% authentically as you are. You do not have to change that just because you come to Oklahoma or the United States. So a copy of the Quran, the Holy Scripture of the Islamic faith, a prayer rug, prayer beads, things that will look familiar to them and will make them feel, yeah, I can continue to be myself where I am. And then Catholic Charity said, you know what, you guys are doing these welcome kits. Why don't you provide them with a welcome meal? Because they will be getting meals in the subsequent days through us and through the other entities, but they're not going to be the meals that they're familiar with. So we contacted a local Muslim restaurant, Zemzem Mediterranean Grill in Oklahoma City, and we said, can you help us out with this? And so we worked out an agreement. So every time they land from the airport to the hotel or to the apartment, wherever they're staying that first night, They'll get the welcome bag and they'll get a halal meal from a local Muslim-owned restaurant that includes cuisine that is more familiar to them. And the feedback we've heard thus far is that this makes them feel very happy and very welcome. And that was further emphasized by a friend of mine um, whose name is Isa. And Isa is actually the Arabic name which translates to English as Jesus, right? So he's a Muslim named Jesus, who actually came from Nazareth in, you know, what was traditionally known as Palestine. There's some irony in that, and we always, you know, have a good laugh about it. But uh, Isa came to me and he said, I love what you're doing. And he's not the kind of person that speaks up a lot, you know, about things, but he is a good friend of mine. He said, I love what you're doing for the refugees. I said, well, thank you. I said, why do you say that? Because he normally doesn't comment a lot on these issues. And I said, why, why would you say that, Isa? And he said, because I was a refugee myself. And when I came to this country, the first day or two, the first 24 to 48 hours, everything I touched, everything I saw, everything I tasted, it had an impact on my perspective of the United States and on who I became eventually. He said, so what you're doing is going to impact these people for years to come, if not for their entire life. And that made me feel really good about the whole project because it was a huge project and it still continues to be a huge undertaking. And then from there, we said, you know, we got to continue to support these people when we realize they're not coming with anything at all, um, if, if not just a small bag. And so we started collecting clothing donation, additional hygiene items. Um, and then we realized we need things for the kids. So little stuffed animals, soccer balls for the boys to kick around. And so these are things we've been working on to support them in the initial transition period. And then the, the verdict is still out as to what we need to do to support them long-term. But our goal is no matter what it takes, we're gonna be there for this community because it falls within the mission of our organization that we are here to empower the Muslim community. And more than anything, I tell people our overall mission is not all these fancy words you read on our website. It can be really summed up in the statement that our goal is to improve the quality of life for Muslims living in the state of Oklahoma and by extension, improving the quality of life for all Oklahomans. So in doing this work with the refugee population, that's really what we hope to achieve. I think it's so 
important and impactful the way that you all have undertaken this project um, specifically to really affirm who these individuals and families are. It's been mm -hmm. um, really incredible to watch and, and read news stories about it. So major kudos to you and your team and Catholic mm -hmm. Charities as well for, for doing such important work that um, absolutely, as your friend said, is going to impact who they are for the rest of their lives. So, so what's next for CARE? What are some of the key issues that you and your team want to address or continue to address in the coming year? I smile when you ask that question because you know we always ask ourselves that and even when we try not to plan too much, things come up, right? So our organization is incredibly busy all the time because there's always issues related to, especially in Oklahoma, religious freedom, uh, legislation that impacts minorities, not always in a good way, right? Um, and many other issues. So what's next? I think priorities for care, one has been in the last 20 years in a post 9-11 world has been Islamophobia and the impact of, of anti-Muslim hate and anti-Muslim racism as it is on the Muslim community in Oklahoma and throughout, throughout the entire country, to be quite honest with you. So that's an issue we continue to tackle day in and day out. Uh, we try to get out to as many people as possible, whether it's physically being in the presence of others in churches, synagogues, workplaces, um, you know, wherever we can go to speak on the issues that are important to train people. We do trainings for healthcare providers, for educators, for employers on how they can create a more inclusive and diverse environment. So challenging Islamophobia is a big issue, and that's one that we're continuing to focus on. Uh, we're also continuing to focus on the legislative session that happens in Oklahoma year after year. And this is one thing that I have learned. So we launched this full, fully fledged government affairs department a few years ago. And to the parents listening, look, you've got to pay attention to what happens at the Capitol, no matter what you do, okay? I got into this because of my work, but then I realized I was doing a great disservice to myself, to my family, and to the people I truly care about by not paying attention to what laws are passed whether it be on a municipal or a city-based level, a state level, or even a federal level, because they impact us and our families. I'll just give an example. Um, House Bill 1775, regardless of what your opinion is on that, that is the House bill that basically was put forth as, we need to pass this legislation in order to ban teachers from teaching critical race theory. Now, I'm not gonna get into the, the weeds about it, but the point is, that's impacting the quality of education that our children are getting and will continue to get here in the state of Oklahoma, right? If we don't realize that, if this is the first time you're hearing about it, then recognize that this is an issue that we should be aware of as parents that are raising children that will go through the educational system. I'll just speak from my own perspective. I grew up in, in Kansas, a few years in Alabama, eventually ended up in Oklahoma in high school. So I took Oklahoma history. I did not learn about the Tulsa race massacre until a few years ago. I took Oklahoma history between 10th and 11th grade years. So I wasn't even a freshman. So I had a different perspective at that time and I probably retained a lot more of the information than I would have otherwise. I remember talking about the Trail of Tears, the Native American tribes, uh, the land run. In fact, I remember we watched that movie with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. I don't even remember the name of it, right? Where they portray the land run. These things are clear in my mind. But 
we did not learn about the Tulsa race massacre. And it wasn't until my friend, Councilman Bashir Jones, who was the first Muslim elected to Cleveland City Council in Ohio, I brought him to visit Oklahoma for an event. And we drove to Tulsa together. And he said, take me to Black Wall Street. This was just a few years back. And I was like, oh, I mean, I kind of knew where about it was. And I took him, I, I knew to take him to Tulsa to the John Hope Franklin Reconciliation Park. I knew it was in around that area. He said, tell me about Black Wall Street. I didn't know what to tell him. I, I, I was lost, but I was ashamed to tell him, right? You don't want to always admit you don't know things. Thankfully, there was a, a Black woman there who was able to explain some of the history and things like that. But that's when I realized I've got to educate myself so I can educate others. The point being, the fact that our children have not been learning about this very important issue that took place not too long ago in Oklahoma's history, that to me is doing a great disservice to the quality of our children's life now and in the future. And so thus, I say all that to say, parents, we have to pay attention to what's going on at the legislature and how laws that are being passed impact us as families. And then what's next for care? I mentioned it, the big project we're working on now is prison ministry, providing resources to Muslims in the incarceration system. Some of them are incarcerated and they're Muslim when they get sent to prison, but many of them convert to Islam in prison. And look, none of us want our children or our loved ones, right, to end up there one day. But that being said, look, my kids are growing up older. They're, they're about to be nine and six years old. I'm losing control of them already, right? I can't really control them. So we don't know what the future holds for anyone, right? But the point is, anyone who ends up in the prison system needs to have the support and the resources to find a hope. And what brings them hope? Oftentimes, it's religion. And if we cannot provide them with the support they need, including a fully-fledged educational curriculum that's rooted in proper Islamic scholarship and the support of a faith-based community when they get out of prison, then we're not really assisting them and we're not helping to rehabilitate them, which is really what they're supposed to be doing during this time. So our goal is to launch this project. We're working with a nationally renowned Islamic scholar who's actually originally from Oklahoma, Soheib Webb, a graduate of the University of Central Oklahoma, much like me. So shout out to UCO Broncos. Um, and we hope to launch this program early in 2022. And so that's one of our big projects that will take up a big portion of our time um, next year. That's really exciting, Adam. Um, you have mentioned you are involved in the community in lots of different capacities. Um, you mentioned you teach at Oklahoma State University. Mm. You served on the mayor's task force to reinstate the Human Rights Commission. And you're the current chair of the Oklahoma Conference of Churches Religions United Committee, among lots of other areas of service. Um, in professionally, personally, through your service, you're really focused on building bridges, on religious education, on encouraging diversity. Why are these areas of focus such key pieces of who you are as a person? Well, I'll keep it simple. It's because 
I am a very diverse person in my background. So I was raised in a multicultural, multi-faith home. I was born in 1983 to a Shia Muslim father who immigrated from Iran right before the Iranian revolution. I'm sure many of the parents will remember that. When I tell my students at Oklahoma State University, they're like, what, what happened, right? I, I forget how young they are, right? That makes me feel old. Um, but my father immigrated from Iran. Um, and so he's a, he was a Shia Muslim and an Iranian during a very tumultuous time for our country, where our country was not ready to accept neither his culture nor his religion. And he married my mother, a white woman from Olathe, Kansas, uh, who was a Catholic, right? Born and raised Catholic, very proud of her faith. And so I grew up in this, in, in this multi-faith home, also this multicultural home, but not just multicultural a culture, like a cultural diversity that the world was not ready to accept. And for that reason, I could not understand, right? For the parents listening, you might be familiar with the film, right? That was released in 1984, um, uh, Not Without My Daughter, right? Starring Sally Fields, who later on went to star in Mrs. Doubtfire, right? So that's where we know her from. But Not Without My Daughter was a film that led to a lot of hatred being propagated against my own family including from my mother's parents, because it was a film that basically posed the concept that Iranian men would take their American wives to Iran and kidnap the, <clears throat> excuse me, kidnap the children and force the women to leave and go back home. Thus, the title of the film, Not Without My Daughter, right? So that just gives you an idea of how difficult it was to be this Iranian American child during that time. I remember facing weird questions from my classmates when I was in elementary school. I remember feeling like I didn't fit into any of those boxes that we're forced to check on forms, right? And I think that's a whole nother issue that our, our forms, right? They have very simple boxes, white, black, you know, Hispanic, Native American. I don't fit into any of those boxes because I'm, I'm not one or the other. I'm made up of multiple things. And so that was really the issue for me growing up. And I had an identity crisis that it took me a long time to figure out and to finally accept who I was, which is not one thing, right? It's multiple things. And to embrace that fully. Well, I don't want my children to go through that. I don't want any of, any of the children to have to go through what I went through, which I really feel like took away from my childhood and forced me to grow up a lot quicker than I necessarily should have had to do. And therefore, that's why I focus on promoting, you know, inclusion and diversity when it comes to faith, right? There's a growing and a vibrant interfaith community here in Oklahoma. We have to have discussions about our faith, our commonalities, and our differences and be able to not only understand them, but to respect them. Thus, if we can do that, we can respect each other and build positive relationships. We also have to understand, you know, our diversity, right? We come from different places. We're made up of different things. I'm an Iranian American, and I married a Palestinian American who was raised by a Moroccan stepfather. My children are born and will continue to be influenced by their white American grandmothers, their Iranian grandfather, their Palestinian grandfather, their Moroccan grandfather, right? I mean, they have, and then of course, the Christian background, the Muslim background, not to mention all the other things they're exposed to in their life. And that's why it's so important. So promoting diversity, understanding what it means to be inclusive, understanding what it means to create an equitable society, and also creating these opportunities and these important 
you know, moments of engagement when it comes to faith and to culture and discussion and understanding are crucial for me. And I think it's the only way that we'll be able to build a better future for our children. And I have hope. I really do, because I've been teaching at Oklahoma State University for the last two years. And I see in the young people, many of them who are born after the tragic events of 9-11, their lens is not filtered through all of these tragedies that many of us have had to live through, whether it be the Iranian Revolution, right, the Iran-Iraq War, the Oklahoma City bombing, 9-11. Our lives have been defined by tragedy. These young people, thankfully, they are not, right, dealing with all of these issues. And therefore, I, get, I have a lot of hope because I see in them that they are able to quickly understand the need for inclusion, diversity, and equity, and they're quickly able to adapt to be able to promote those things within themselves in the classroom and hopefully in society as well. Thank you for sharing that, Adam. Um, I, I think it's really meaningful that you are able to take such difficult pieces of your growing up and, and turn that into this quest to create a better future for your kids and, and for all of our kids together. Um, I think one of the things for me that's so inspirational about you is your ability to really hone in on the things that you are passionate about and then find the places in the community that you can put those talents to work. Um, and as parents, I know for me, I know for all of us at times, we get so caught up in all the everyday things, the sight word lists, the reading charts, you know, all the things that we don't really stop to think about our own talents and our own dreams and how, how we can make a difference in the world around us. So Adam, what advice do you have, inspiration for other parents on finding those intersections where their passion and the needs of the community meet? Um, look, first and foremost, you can do it, right? If, if you have that feeling in your heart and in your mind that you want to make a difference, you want to make a positive change, you've already taken the step in the right direction. So believe in yourself and know you can do it. And then just start small, okay? So my career is, is within this nonprofit world and this social change world. So I'm doing this on a daily basis. And although it may look glamorous, perhaps from some perspectives, trust me, it's not, it's not for everyone. It's a tough job. And it's, I post a lot of positive things on social media, but it's not all that, right? There's a lot of hard work, blood, sweat, and tears, sleepless nights that goes on behind the scenes. My suggestion is just start small and start by making a difference with anyone and everyone you can. There are so many volunteer opportunities. One of the best ones for families is to go to the regional food bank, you know, regional food bank website. You can sign up for a volunteer opportunity as a family, go out there and package food for people in need. You'll never meet the people. But I'll tell you, I worked at the Department of Human Services and we used to receive these boxes that had the logo of regional food bank stamped on them. I used to give them to families, right? I never met the people packaging them. But then when I started volunteering there, I put the two and two together and realized I was making an impact. I was part of the process, right? And so just get involved and do something. You can do it once a year, once a month, once a week. That's it, right? So find volunteer opportunities, make a difference where you can. Maybe it's just with a friend, right? Uh, maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's at a, a, a local religious institution, your church or wherever you go to, but find a way to make a difference. Start small and 
the key that I have learned from my mentors and my teachers, my life teachers, if you will, is to be consistent. And that is the key to success. If you start doing something on a regular basis, you may be able to increase that, but never stop the consistency of doing it. Follow your passions, right? Don't give up on that. And one piece of advice that I would recommend for parents when it comes to raising our children, and this is the, the advice I give to myself and I hope to follow. The reason I ended up where I am today is because my friend told me, he was originally from India, and we went to school together at UCO. And he told me, he said, don't follow your career and then your career goals and then determine your passion. He said, follow your passion and make your career goals fit that. And that was a very powerful thing that continued to stay on my mind as I took a journey in terms of education and eventually the steps I took in my career. Um, so that would be the best advice I have for trying to raise our children to get involved in social good is help them determine their passion, not their career. You can make a career out of anything, and I've seen it, but help them figure out what their passion is. And trust me, our children, they're smart. They will figure out a way to build a career around what they're passionate about. Those are such great tips, Adam. I can already tell I'm going to be watching this back and taking a lot of notes. So in talking about teaching our kids to give back, what are some ways that you and your wife are doing that in your home? And you just mentioned helping your kids find their passion. How does that influence how you guys give back as a family? So it's just teaching them simple things, right? I mean, they're still young. Um, as they get older, they begin to understand, okay, we're doing this for, to help these people, right? So because I'm so busy in the nonprofit work I do, I actually take them to my office and I show them the work we're doing, right? So I want them to see that hands-on. You know, when we're collecting all these items for refugees, I take them there and I say, this is what we're collecting. And they say, oh, somebody donated toys. They get excited. Oh, can I have the toys, daddy? No, <laughs> these are not for you, Right. You have toys at home, but these are for young children that don't have toys like you do. So these are not easy conversations to have, right? You don't want to share with your children some of the harsh realities of life, but I make it a point to do that and to actually sit down and talk to them and explain what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and how it's having an impact on other people. And then get them involved in the process, right? So one of the things with, I've learned with my own kids, and I think it's pretty common, is that kids are all me, 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 right? They don't want to share. They don't want to do things. But what I do is I oftentimes, when I buy things for my kids, I'll buy things for other children in the neighborhood and tell them, you need to give that to your friend, right? To teach them, you know, this is not going that step of, okay, we're helping the homeless or we're helping other people because it's hard for them to be in those situations. They're still very young and you don't necessarily want to put them in those situations right away, but it's teaching them the concept of giving, right? Giving to someone else, sharing. Um, and then also sometimes other kids will come over to the house and they'll play and they'll really like a toy. And so I'll tell my children, look, you have a lot of toys. Why don't you give your friend that toy then let them take it home, right? Right. Let teaching them to let go, 
And I think that's an issue we have, all of us in America. We don't want to let go of things. I mean, we are the nation that made the TV show Hoarders famous across the world, right? I mean, we want, <laughs> we want to get things and hold on to them. And then we want to fight for the newest things. I mean, every year we're, well, we used to stand in lines, I don't know, virtual lines now for the new iPhones and things like that. But we have excess. So teaching my children, if you have something, you can part with it to give to someone else. So I think these are important lessons to start them with. And then as they get older, I have plans to take them with me to the food bank, you know, take them with me to volunteer for Habitat for Humanity and all these other things, and to teach them the hands-on skills um, that they can combine with the theoretical skills I've hopefully given them at a young age, and they can then decide for themselves where they want to take it. I love the honesty, Adam, because you're absolutely right that our kids are very focused on themselves. And, and you know what? So are their parents a lot of the times, too. We are, yeah. So um, I know that that is a struggle in our household, too, and that having those conversations early and often. Um, I love the focus on teaching kids just about giving mm. and letting go. Um, I think that's something we can start at any age. And a lot of times families with young kids may feel like they're not quite old enough to do some of those volunteer um, opportunities yet, but they can absolutely learn what giving looks and feels like right. for them. So I love that, that's such great advice. So I know, especially for parents like you who are committed to serving others, it can be really hard to put yourself first what are some of the ways that you take a step back from work and other obligations to care for yourself? And what could other parents glean from that advice? So I'll give a piece of advice that was given to me by a nonprofit coach early in my career where I felt like I was drowning, to be quite honest with you, because, you know, in the nonprofit world, I, I'm the executive director of care. And there's a lot of pressure on me because if I don't raise the money and I don't pull, you know, the support together, there's not salary for the employees. We, we can't pay the rent. I mean, we, you know, you hear the saying paycheck to paycheck, you know, we live paycheck to paycheck. Well, we live donation to donation. And that's how a lot of nonprofits survive. And so I was putting a lot of pressure on myself after the first couple of years of doing this work. And so I was given the opportunity to, to work with a nonprofit coach. And she said, Adam, you've got to schedule time for yourself. And that was a foreign concept to me because I was scheduling time for everything else, but I wasn't scheduling time for myself. She said, not even for your family. She said, schedule time for you. And you don't have to justify to others or explain what it's about. Just schedule time on your calendar and do whatever makes you feel better and recharges your batteries, whether it's going to the coffee shop and reading a good book or doing a workout or playing video games, whatever the case may be. That was a very important lesson to me because she said, if you don't take care of yourself, how can you ever take care of others, your family included? And so I think that's a very valuable lesson I learned. And I began to find time, even if it's just five or 10 minutes, right? To sit in a room. And now that's, this is my favorite activity is to just sit in a room, shut the door and be quiet, right? Because there's noise everywhere in my life, right? When you have kids, it's like, you just want a mute button for everything, right? And so that's my favorite thing to do is just clear my mind. So um, I think that's the number one thing. And then the other thing is a piece of advice that was given to me by one of my professors at OU, University of Oklahoma, when I did my master's program. This was one of the last courses I took. And he said, listen, I'm going to give you guys a piece of life advice that I've learned. 
He said, your career or your family will be your priority. Never both at the same time. He said, it's going to always be one or the other that will take priority in your life. That can change. But he said, if you recognize that one is taking priority over the other, then you can balance that out by shifting priorities at the appropriate time. And I thought that was a very important lesson. And I've kept that with me and constantly revisit that thought because that is the truth. You can't give 100% of yourself to your career and your family at the same time. I think the key thing that I've learned from that piece of advice is to gauge when you need to give 100% to your family and when you need to give 100% to your career. And don't make the mistake of giving 100% to the wrong one because I have done that and that hurts, right? It can hurt your family, it can hurt your career. So learn from that and try to make sure you're giving the appropriate time to the appropriate place. My friend Bashir Jones that I mentioned early on, in his second visit to Oklahoma, uh, he's, he's a man who's always thinking. And he got into my car and we had developed a friendship by this time. So it was, there were no introductions or pleasantries. He just gave me this piece of advice. He said, I learned something just in the past few days. He said, what? I said, what? He said, there's a difference between being where you're needed and knowing where you need to be, right? And for somebody who does work like I do that's community-based, that was an important you know, moment for me to recognize that, yeah, maybe I'm needed in many different places, right? I'm being called to go to the mosque, for example, my religious institution. I'm being called to go to the office where I work or care. My students need me at Oklahoma State University. Uh, you know, so-and-so needs me. All these things are happening. But where I need to be right now is with my children because they need me most, right? Or perhaps in another moment, I need to be focused on my career, right? So it's knowing where you need to be because there's always, especially when you get in a leadership position, there's always people who need you. There's always things that need you, but you don't always need to be everywhere and you can't be everywhere. And when you try to do that, you basically, you know, suck the life out of yourself and that's not a healthy thing to do. So those are my three pieces of advice, you know, for the parents out there and know that you're going to make mistakes. It's a journey. It's a struggle. I am not a perfect parent at all, but I am there for my children as much as I can be. And I try to show them as much love and affection as I can. And I admit that I won't be perfect. I'm going to make mistakes. And when I make mistakes, I tell my children, look, I come to them and I say, look, daddy, I didn't do a good job. I'm sorry. I wasn't there for you. I'm sorry. I didn't pay attention, you know, when you got that award at school, but I'm sorry for not being there, but I'm here now and I want to do better, right? So being honest with our children, they're smart. Let's treat them uh, the way they are, right? As these young, smart, growing flowers, if you will. Let's nourish them. Let's water them. Let's give them the, you know, the, the plant food, if you will, that they need so they can grow to be very strong young adults and eventually lead careers better than our own. I do a lot of uh, apologizing to my kids too, Adam. I think um, that was something that I learned from a friend very early on in parenting, how important that is. And, um, you know, I want, I want my kids too to see that I make mistakes and it's okay mm. to make mistakes, but it's how we, how we handle those with the people right. around us that really matters. Um, so I'm not always, I'm not always perfect at that either, but that's something <laughs> that, that I'm certainly working on with my kids. 
So this has been such a, a heavy season of life, um, especially for parents, especially too for people who work in the nonprofit world. This has mm. been um, an unprecedented season in so many ways. Um, but in the face of all that, you mentioned earlier that you're really finding hope in the next generation in your students. Um, is that the key place that you're finding hope in your life right now, or are there others you'd like to mention too? Well, definitely, you know, I, I say teaching at Oklahoma State University has been a true blessing because I see a lot of hope in the, this young generation of people. Every conversation I have with them about religion, there's a new course I'm teaching called Religion, Race, and Social Justice. So we talk about racism, we talk about white supremacy, we talk about tough issues like the KKK and its history and its origin in America, and so on and so forth. And to see the way that this new generation can grasp these concepts and understand how we can improve America, right, as an institution, it gives me a lot of hope. But the other thing is, you know, there are a lot of positive stories out there in the world. There's a lot of stories of people doing good, of people coming together to, to build hope and to build a brighter future. I'll just give a, a piece of advice that I've taken in and used myself. Stop watching the news. <laughs> You know, honestly, I found that the news, the nightly news broadcast, the 24-hour news cycle is what was killing my, my focus and, and really making me feel depressed, um, especially during the election times, right? I remember during the, uh, up, the lead up to the 2016 elections, oh man, I was glued to the TV and I was getting depressed, right? So the thing is, don't let people feed you information. Find the good information that is out there. Read the positive stories of people giving back and helping each other, of the faith communities coming together to support one another, right? There's so many articles in the Oklahoma and Tulsa world on some of these online publications about the faith communities and the nonprofits coming together to help the Afghan refugees. Sometimes you have to dig to find those, right? But the thing is, these things are happening all around us. I don't think the world is a bad place. I don't think that there is more negativity in the world than positivity. I think the problem is where we're turning to oftentimes, those places are feeding us a lot of negativity without us realizing it. And therefore we start to think with this negative mindset. So my piece of advice is number one, look at your children, right? My children give me hope every day because they are not carrying around the baggage that I am. And neither are their friends, you know, or anything else like that. Look, my, my son has another friend in the neighborhood that comes by almost every day after school and they want to play, you know, together. And there's no questions about the religion that my son comes from, his cultural background, nothing like that. It's just, we want to have fun together, right? And seeing that, it makes me think, you know, if as adults, we could do that, the world would be such a better place. But that's the key, right? Focusing in on the next generation, on my own children, and also tuning out the negativity. And that includes social media, you know, we have to be very selective about what we do on social media and how we engage, not do whatever you want. I mean, TikTok, Facebook, I don't care. I'm on all those platforms. But I learned to tune out the negativity and it's made my life a lot better. And not only for me, for my family and my children. That's such great advice. And you're right that our, our children are absolutely where we can all find hope. And too, in the work of great people in Oklahoma City like you, like your team at CARE, 
there are a, there's a lot of good going on in our community right now. A lot of good yet to be done, but yeah. um, there are some great things happening. Thank you so much for joining me today, Adam. Thank you and your team for being a beacon of hope for all the parents who are listening to this. Thank you. It's an honor. Uh, truly, you know, I've been in Oklahoma for more than 20 years. Um, graduate, of, graduate of Edmund Santa Fe High School, University of Central Oklahoma. Now, University of Oklahoma, you know, a few years ago with my master's degree. And I will say this, and I'll leave this as a parting word for all the parents listening. As an American Muslim uh, who has a very diverse background, I found Oklahoma to be an amazing place to live despite some of the challenges. And I found it an even more amazing place to raise a family and children who are growing up with a lot of diversity and hopefully diverse perspectives on life as they know it. And I will say that if we keep working together as parents, as communities, as Oklahomans, I really think we're gonna build a better future for our children. And we're going to build a future in which our children as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said famously, we're still working towards that dream. They will not be judged by the color of their skin or by some label, but rather by the content of their character. So keep hope alive and let's keep working towards a better future for our children. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Adam. For our listeners, you can learn more about CARE, their work in our community, and how you can help at careoklahoma.com. Thanks everyone for listening. Join us next time on Raising OKC Kids.